0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you are newer to our church, we're so glad you're here. Welcome. So glad you're with us. And if you are a part of the family, it's really good to see you again. Always good to see familiar faces. My name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as lead pastor here on a team of other pastors. And this morning, last Sunday, I told you we're going to start a series on Psalms. And we're going to do that, but just not today. Because there's something else that I need to preach this morning. And I'm not sure if the reason... Um, We're doing this this morning because it was such a strong conviction is that someone's here today who won't be here next week and just needs to hear this. Who knows? But this morning, the topic of the message is self-awareness. Now, before we launch into the message, I want to talk about one thing that's important for you to be aware of. Last year, we introduced something called challenge coins. Do you guys remember this? Okay, so if you have any connection with the military, if you know anyone who's served in the military, you know the challenge coins are part of the military or a lot of first responder type units. It's a coin that you carry around in your pocket, and if you ever show one to someone else, got the same coin, you gotta buy each other a drink, that kind of thing. It's it's a way of saying we have had a shared experience. We're bonded to the same thing. Now we're not the military. In a way we are, we're called the Lord's army. But the point of this is, in our culture today, we don't have a lot of connection to physical things that commemorate something real. Everything is virtual and digital. And so we made these coins as a way of saying, when you enter a certain life stage or a different um, status at this church, we want to make sure you get a coin and that it's something you can keep with you forever, we hope. Don't try to garage sale or goodwill. It has no value outside of the sentimental, okay? But here's what we're hoping with these things. Maybe some of us will just take it and throw it in a drawer and never look at it till we go to college or move our house. And we're like, what is this thing? But we pray even in that moment, there will be an anointing as you drag that coin out of a dusty box and you remember the time that you spent in that life stage here at this church and the way that God was faithful to you and worked in your life during that period. That's the real hope of these coins is they are an ongoing physical reminder throughout the course of your life, not really of this church, but of the way God met you in the season that you were walking with us here. We generally give these coins when you enter a new life stage or status, with the exception of the children's ministry. There's one for seeds that you can see there. Um, That one is given to the kids after they finish grade school, because if we give it to them when they enter seeds, we'd be given a coin to an 18-month-old. That's messed up. probably swallow it and get in trouble, so... You get you get that when you finish seeds, but then there's one that you get for the vine when you enter youth group. How many of you knew our youth group was called the vine? All right, good, good. That's what it's called. And then we have Greenhouse, which is our college age ministry. It's the post-high school young adult ministry. We call it college age because we don't believe it's God's plan for everyone to go to college, nor is it an expectation. But for those people in that age group, there's a ministry set aside for them. And then there is CORE. And that is our young adult and slash millennials ministry, if you will, okay? So if you are single or you're married without kids and you still feel younger than older, this is entirely a sliding scale of self-selection, okay? We're not going to go, sorry, you're too seasoned, get out. It's just up to you. If that, it's the group you feel you identify with, there's a ministry for you. And when you identify with that ministry, you will also be given a coin. And finally, if you become one of the members of our church, and we we actually have covenant membership here, which means you're not a member just because you attend. You're always welcome, and you are part of us in the congregation. But there is yet an additional step. When you decide publicly to say, this is my home church, my family, and I publicly join this church and declare it to be my home, at that point, there's a covenant that we ask you to affirm with us to define your um, commitment to the church and to this church family, and you would receive then a member's coin. Those of you who are already members, you're invited this afternoon to a budget meeting. We hope you'll be there, and this morning, this afternoon at the budget meeting, members will receive their coins. If you're a member and you cannot or will not be at the meeting Simply let us know we 're going to track who gets them we 're going to make sure they get all, all of them get into the hands of the right people, but just wanted to let you know um, something about this that attractive wooden stand is not just for display purposes, but we actually sell them in the back so if you think you 've been here long enough to have collected the set, you are more than welcome to pick one up for ten dollars that 's ad cost actually, we eat about twenty five cents on that, but we want you to be able to have them because I think it 's better than throwing them in a drawer leaving them on your desk will make you look at them again and again and reflect on the ways that God met you through this church. So challenge coins. I just wanted to give you a brief word to let you know about that because you'll be hearing more about them throughout the year as we feature these different life stages and pray for them and make sure we get those coins into everyone's hands. Well, this morning the title of the message is Know Thyself. It's about the importance and the difficulty of self-awareness. I, I I really toyed with the idea of doing a blind poll, having you guys close your eyes, and how many of you feel like you're above average in self-awareness, but have you ever seen a photo of yourself, and you just kind of went, I don't really look like that, do I? Do you ever have that experience? You're like, oh, d- is that really what I... I have that experience a lot. <laughs> That's why I don't like looking at social media if there's posts including me. Do you ever i got to tell you this too, I have only listened to my own sermon on audio recording twice in 25 years. I've been told in my homiletics class that's terrible, I should listen to it every Sunday. I can't do it. I can't bear the sound of my own voice on recording. Isn't it weird how you hear your voice recorded and it sounds totally different? Than the way it's, And obviously there's physiological, mechanical reasons why. But even so, the, the point is there's a way you see yourself and there's a way everyone else sees you and they don't always match, do they? You swear you have this picture of yourself and that's why it can be a little discouraging, even frightening to spend that 30 minutes at a personal retreat making unbroken eye contact with your reflection in the mirror. To really see what you look like. And that's just the surface, the physical how you sound, how? You, but it's really much harder to develop true self-awareness of your heart, your real condition in your inner life. There's a classic 1977 study that tracked professors, and it surveyed them and said, how many of you feel that you are above average as a teacher? 90% felt they were above. you understand the problem with the math here? 9 out of 10 believe they are above average. And statistically, only 50% or more could actually feel like they're above average, right? Here's another frightening thing. Two-thirds felt they were in the top quarter. Now, after that study, social psychologists developed a term that they then found was everywhere in human society. In fact, it became so prevalent that social psychologists were shocked when it didn't show up in one of their studies. And that term is called illusory superiority. There's a lot of other ways that they've named it, but illusory superiority means this. We have this idea that we are much better than we actually are. That's partly because we are so familiar with our own motives, our own inner workings, that we have given ourselves tremendous amounts of credit for our nobility and our goodness. So even when we admit we fail, we fail for very good, understandable reasons. What sane human wouldn't have failed in our shoes? But when we see other people, we have done almost no thinking about what drives them, what challenges they face, what restrictions they have to live with. And so all we see is their behavior and the effect it has on us, and we indict them very quickly and say, you stink. Yeah, I know I did the same thing, but I had extenuating circumstances. You're just a horrible person. And that truly is the way we... So even when I'm driving and my kids say things like, Dad, you're a crazy driver. I'm like, no, I'm very skilled. <laughs> that, that move right there would have led to a spin-out for you. It was a controlled slide for me. The truth is, even when I stink at driving, I'm convinced that I'm better than average. That with proper training, I could have been a stunt driver for Hollywood. That is actually not true. I am at times a terrible driver. I just can't admit it to myself. The ancient Greeks had a saying, and the saying was, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, but thee say which easily translates to know thyself. And Socrates is probably the philosopher who made that phrase most famous, and at the trial in which he was condemned to death, one of the statements he made, loosely related to this idea of self-awareness, is that the unexamined life is not worth living. Point is, for a philosopher who spent his whole life trying to examine the world, to understand reality, one of the most challenging parts of that, one of the most elusive parts of that, was to actually understand our true selves. It is the quest of a lifetime, and yes, you can grow in it, but it's not as easy to know yourself as you might think. And so he cautioned people all the time, don't jump past that. Understand that knowing yourself matters critically. So much of your life flows out of it. And if you don't know yourself, you will be a wrecking ball. In the words of a more modern philosopher, Ice Cube, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. (laughs) Amen? Good words. It's like, check yourself. Because if you don't, oh man, the damage we do when we have no clue how we affect others because we have no real clue Why we do what we do. It's a a funny saying, know yourself. Because the self, myself, is the person I logically should know the best. After all, I spend a lot of time with me. Last I checked, I have been everywhere that I have been. I've seen everything I've seen. Do you understand what I say? I've heard every word I've said. If there's any person I should know, it's myself. That's logical, but in actual experience, myself is sometimes a person I actually know the least, in spite of the fact that I rehearse a narrative about me to everyone who will listen. Oh, I'll tell you what I'm like. You know, I was told in a, um, in a class on leadership, if you want to be a good leader, get people, other people talking. Don't do all the talking. And if you want people to talk, there's no better subject than talking about yourself. So I was told, when you're having lunch with someone and you want to unlock their, their words, just go tell me about yourself and then sit back and fasten your seatbelt. Most people go an hour because we love to talk about ourselves. And yet sometimes... That thing we say about ourselves is a simple thought about us that we decided is true and have repeated it so many times that we swear it's true of us. Do you remember years ago, I talked to you about, I preached about in a sermon about a memory that I had where I was run over by a car, my legs. I fell down and a Volkswagen Beetle ran over my legs when I was a very young child in Portland, Oregon. And I repeated that story because it had shocked and marked me for so long and I have and the, the Craziest part of that story is I walked away from that incident injury-free. Well, my brother heard me preach that one time, and as an illustration, he goes, you idiot. That was me that got run over by the car, not you. <clears throat> and, you know, <clears throat> thing is, I was so shocked because in my mind, I could actually picture a video. Like, do you know how crazy it is that you could have a memory so false? That you can see it in your mind's eye like it happened. And that's because, this is how much I love my brother. When it happened to me, let me turn this back to something good about myself. (laughs) I internalized his pain. Made it my own. But imagine the shock when I thought that a big part of my life story was a part of someone else's life story. There is a well-known phenomenon called the Mandela Effect. Have you heard of this? Somebody made a movie about it, where it's the best way I can describe it is a collective misremembering, where we all swear something happened and it's true, and yet when you take a closer look, you're like, oh my gosh, that's not actually how it is. And it's called the Mandela Effect because for a long time everyone swears that Nelson Mandela died in prison in the 80s. So when in, in the 2000s people find out Nelson Mandela was free and and the president and still alive, they're like, what? I swear he, in fact, some people can remember seeing his funeral on television. Isn't that crazy? And because so many people misremembered that, it's called the Mandela effect. Let me give you a couple other quick, there's so many out there. Let me give you a couple quick ones. Sorry, Star Wars fans, I'm going to skip the ones from Star Wars. You know, Uncle Pennybags from Monopoly, everyone swears he wears a monocle, right? He's never had one. There's no picture where he's got the monocle, but you swear you've seen it. How about Curious George? Is that Curious George? Wrong. Curious George never had a tail in any book, but you swear you saw it. In fact, I actually remembered books where I saw him hanging from a tree branch by his tail. I swear I saw it, but that's impossible because he's never had a tail. How about the evil queen in Snow White? What did she say to the mirror? Say it. Yeah, mirror, mirror on the wall. No. Watch the movie. She never says mirror, mirror. She says magic mirror on the wall. Where do we get mirror, mirror? You know how we repeat it so many times? We start with not actually paying attention, not looking closely, and then when we repeat it enough times, all of us just see, it's like, that's true. That's how it is. And we make it true by our collective misremembering. Why am I sharing that? Because I believe that's the way most of us actually know about ourselves. Do you know, solitude frightens most people. Does it frighten you? How many of you would think that 72 hours in a room without television or the internet or your phone spent alone with your thoughts is a wonderful idea? Raise your hand if that just sounds like heaven on earth. Okay, now raise your hand if if that sounds like imprisonment or punishment, like... A horrible, frightening time. The majority of society would consider that a terrible thing. The worst way to spend three days is to be by myself with no other distraction and have to confront my thoughts and myself. Why are we afraid of that? Because the me that I know is a me I have carefully managed and rehearsed until the me that I project to the world and even tell myself is a me I can live with, but not necessarily the me that everyone else has to live with. Amen? Now, right now, I'm talking about you, but probably you're also thinking about, oh, gosh, I really, I'm going to send this sermon to somebody because (laughs) they need to hear. They're killing me because they cannot see. And every time I've taken the risk to tell them, you know, sometimes you, I don't. Yes, you do. And they punish you and they shout you down until there's no way they'll ever learn a thing about themselves. That they haven't told themselves already. Self awareness matters, and if you don't develop it, and by the way, it's not easy to develop, but if you don't, it will eventually wreck you and wreck others. Problem with the self is that so much of it is hidden away. Do you remember in Genesis 3, in the aftermath of the fall, when Adam and Eve first sinned, almost immediately, the first consequence of sin entering humanity is that they became aware of their nakedness. That's a weird... I mean, I know it's in the Bible. You've heard it a thousand times. If you've done the Bible reading campaign, this is one of the the things you've read like every year because you got at least through Genesis 3, right? (laughs) So we're very familiar with this. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew They knew. They always knew they were naked, but now they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why is that the first consequence of the fall? You would think it would say their eyes were open and they hated each other and got into a fight. You're like, yeah, I've been married. I get that. Okay. But the first thing is, oh my gosh, I'm naked. Now here's the thing, their situation hadn't changed at all. They'd been naked as jaybirds their whole lives. Nothing changed except their point of view and the way they felt about what had always been there. As soon as they sin, a darkness enters their heart and why they try to hide is that they realize the darkness in me also lives in you. So that in the same ungenerous, ungracious way I think about you, you must be thinking about me. Have you ever had the experience of being in a circle of people and gossiping about someone else and having a good laugh at their expense? Oh my gosh! Did you see what the outfit she tried to pull off today? <laughs> and everyone laughs. And then you have to go to the bathroom. So you get up, and as soon as you walk out of the room, you hear an eruption of laughter, and you're like, "What's your first thought? Come on, what's your first thought? Oh snap! They're ta- they're talking about me now because I left." Right? That, that's the insecurity of sin is that when you're willing to sin with other people, you're convinced everyone's sinning against you too. That's why the people most conscientious about locking their doors are thieves. Do you get it? That's why every executive at Apple does not allow their children to own an iPhone. What is that? That's checked up. We're the idiots. They're like, no, we've made a dangerous thing here. Let's give it to everyone else's kids we know as soon as the darkness enters us that I'm not the only one who feels like this. And then suddenly, the very next impulse is, I cannot let anyone see. I can't let anyone see me. If they only knew. And so the first impulse is to make leaves into clothing and cover their nakedness, hide from each other. But here's the thing that happens. When you hide and cover yourself from other people, one of the consequences is that you hide also from yourself. That's why even when you check your reflection in the mirror throughout the day, you can only see what you look like on the outside. It's not until you go home and shower that you can see what you look like on the inside. When we cover ourselves, we don't just hide from the world. But some of the truth about us is hidden even from our own eyes. If you've ever studied psychology, you've likely come across something called the Johari Window. And it's a quadrant made up on the left side of what others know and don't know about us. It's a it's a quadrant ma- mainly designed to explain and explore self-awareness. So here's knowledge about me, the self. And on the left side, you have what others know about me and what others don't know about me. And on the top, you have what I know about myself and what I don't know about myself. So do you see the logical projection, of, progression of that? So the first quadrant is what we call out in the open. It's what everyone knows about me and what I know about me. Like, what do you know about me, guys, that I know about me? Hopefully, you know, I'm male, right? I'm Korean-American. I like Xbox, Call of Duty, I enjoy movies, I dig my wife and kids, I'm a pastor, I like Apple. Those are things about me that I know and you know. That's the open part, and that's pretty self-explanatory. But here's the thing, that open box is not as big as you think. And it's filled with really small trinkets most of the time. That's why when people presume to know deeper things about us, we're like, you don't know me? Yeah, it's true. We don't really know you. Here's the blind part. That's the stuff that others know about me, but I don't know about me. That's embarrassing. That's like when you've got tissue coming out of the back of your belt or a booger fluttering in your nostril every time you breathe in and out and you're talking to someone, they're staring at you like, and you're like, what, what? There's something about you you don't know. It's a blind spot. It's that part of you that you're oblivious to. And you'll never know until other people tell you. But here's the thing. We reject it most of the time when they try. And then there's the part that is unknown to other people, but I know about me. Like secretly, I wish I could learn the Android operating system but it's so confusing, so I'm going to stick with the iPhone. <laughs> now, that's not true. I'm just giving a hypothetical. <laughs> Give me a break. Let's, I have some limits here. But the point is, dude, these are my secrets. They're the things that I know, but you don't know, and you'll never know until I decide to disclose myself to you. And yet this is the part we take so much offense. You don't know me. How are we supposed to know you? You only leave us the option to guess from a distance Tell us, reveal yourself, be vulnerable, but we don't. And then we get so upset when people assume things about us. Finally, there's the unknown or just the mystery box. That's the stuff that I don't know about me and other people don't know about me, but God knows about me. And that lies in the future if all goes well. Through the process of self-discovery, I will come to know something about myself that neither I nor the world around me presently knows. This is the part that I obsess over these days because I'm fascinated to to think there are truths about me that I have no idea about and nobody else has any idea about yet either. When it comes to self-awareness, it's the part on the right side that we're really concerned with. What don't I know about myself yet? But isn't it interesting that in a quadrant of self-awareness, three out of the four quadrants are about what's hidden from someone? That's the truth. Most of what we are is hidden somewhere away. And so I bring up the Johari window as a way of illustrating that the the symbol of the fig leaf loincloth is a symbol of our basic human drive to cover over ourselves because we're convinced that it's not safe to be seen. Do you know that when I was in high school, one of the things we had to live with was that moment of nakedness in a group at gym class. No one liked it. You had to do it. And so I was thinking about maiming myself at one point just to get out of gym class because it's not a comfortable thing. I find out today kids don't even shower at gym. That's why axe is going through the roof. Body spray is replacing cleanliness in the new generation. Amen. What I love about after this fall of man, Genesis 3-7, is in the aftermath, God confronts Adam and Eve, but he does it not through an exclamation point, but through a question mark. Look at the the way he skillfully uses questions to push towards a greater awareness. Now, listen to me. The fact that an all-knowing God asks any questions at all is remarkable. It should get your attention. Why on earth does someone who knows everything ask any questions at all? Well, clearly the answer is that he asks the question not for his own benefit, but for the one who has to answer. That the questions God asks are not designed to provide information to him, but to confront that person and make them find that information for themselves. So he asks some important questions here. Three of the key ones are, where are you? Do you really think God's like, shoot, where did I put that Adam guy? Adam, here. It's not Marco Polo. Like, he knows where Adam is. Okay? And then he goes, who told you you were naked? He knows. But he wants Adam to really look deep and start confessing. And then he he asked Eve, what is this that you have done? Now, here's the interesting thing about the way that they answer. Adam is new to sin, so he's still learning. So he's like, oh, my first impulse is I'm going to tell the truth. And so where are you? He goes, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So far, so good. Answer number one, truthful. But by the second question, they're already learning how to deflect and to dodge responsibility and push blame to other people. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of that tree which I told you don't eat it? And he goes, "Well, that woman. <laughs> this is a you uni- know it's her it's her fault. Don't hey, I just work here. This woman you made me marry. She gave me the fruit and so I ate it. What do you want me to do?" By the second question already we're seeing the truth is not something we like to face. And so, giving Adam the benefit of out, he goes to Eve and goes, hey, what'd you do? You know you weren't supposed why'd you give it to Adam? You know he's an idiot. You know he's got no spine. Why would you dangle that in front of him? And she goes, hey, not my fault, that stupid snake made me do it. Do you see the point is that eventually we learn the truth that everything we do wrong is someone else's fault. That if you were in my shoes and had to go through what I went through, how could you blame me? It's that person, it's those people, it's this. And sometimes they contribute, don't get me wrong. It's not like we're cruising through the world, sinning and wrecking everything all out of our own malice. But do you see that we don't own our stuff because it's so much easier to make others own theirs? And when we get a story and it rings true, we stick with it, even though there's more to the story. We're not saying your narrative is false. Most often, your narrative is incomplete. You tell the truth, but not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And I always wondered why in court they go through that kind of rigmarole because lawyers know the evil of a person's heart. Maybe because it's in them too. I don't know. But sorry, lawyers. You you know what I'm saying, right? It takes a crook to catch a crook. And you know that lawyers are specialists in finding loopholes. They're like, I'll tell you the truth. They go, hold on, no, I know what you're going to do. You tell the whole truth. And nothing but the truth. Because if you say, just tell the whole truth, yeah, I'll tell you the whole truth, but I'll mix in enough dissembling, enough other stuff, that you won't know how to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so that's the way we testify in court. You tell the truth, you tell the whole truth, and you tell nothing but the truth. I don't think that describes the way most of us know ourselves. Do you? There's a challenge to self-awareness because so much of the truth of us is hidden and we're the ones who are hiding it. And so in order to break through to real self-awareness, what's hidden has to be revealed. Here's one of the great challenges to that. Jeremiah Jeremiah 79 reminds us, the heart is deceitful above all things. What a crazy statement. You're not going to find anything that deceives more naturally than the human heart. And you're like, I know, I know this person that I live with. No, we're talking about your heart. Your heart is the biggest liar you know. And it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? One of the reasons that it's so hard to gain true self-awareness is that we think that in self-awareness, the self part is subject, not object. We think self-awareness is what myself is aware of about myself. But the truth is, in self-awareness, the self part is object. It's growing in awareness about myself, and I cannot get there just through myself or by myself. That's a long-winded way of saying, if you really want to know yourself, you cannot do it by yourself. It requires other people. No one can truly know themselves by themselves because our hearts lie all the time. All the time. That doesn't mean everything our hearts say is a lie, but our lying is like our native language. Soren Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, once wrote, of all deceivers, fear most yourself. And I believe what he's saying is that before we ever lie to the world, we have convincingly lied to ourselves. I thought a lot this week about the lies I'm telling myself. And I can tell you that was not a comfortable reflection. There are lies That I have told myself, and as a result, they have formed the picture other people have of who I am as a person. I bet you that's true, most of us. And so true self-awareness requires the presence and involvement of other people. And in order to involve other people in something as delicate as open-heart surgery, we need safety and security, don't we? We all know that I can't really know myself without other people, but there's a danger there. And yet you see in Psalm 139, the psalmist writes this really beautiful invitation to God to have this probing examination without defense. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty dangerous invitation to make to anyone else. None of us like it when someone says, hey, can I talk to you about something? How many of us, if, if I were to say that to you just after church today, listen, I, I make a beeline for you after service. Listen, hey, can we talk? i got to talk to you about something. Your first thought is, oh, crud. What? Just tell me now. I don't want to, I don't want to wait a week with this thing hanging over. Just tell me now. What do I do? I've invited people to dinner and it's made them nervous. I just get, it's not because of me. It's not because of them. It's just natural when someone else wants to talk to us about something. Our immediate assumption is it's something bad, right? It's something bad. It's not safe to invite other, but imagine if instead of waiting for them, knock on our door we said look I admit I'm not perfect and I admit that I probably affect you in wrong ways would you please tell me in any way that I've been hurting you there's a power when we turn the tables instead of someone saying can we talk and you're on the defensive you take the offense and say listen I know I'm not perfect and I'm probably affecting you in that would you tell me if there's anything offensive in me is there something I'm missing that I need to see in myself. And something remarkable happens when you don't make the other person store up steam until they have to explode on you, but instead you invite them to tell you. Then it's on your terms. You're ready for it. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's sort of like when you get a medical procedure that's going to be very uncomfortable, you tell the doctor, give me a little warning before you do it. i got to get ready for this. Don't just do it. Tell me it's coming. And when we know something's coming, it makes it easier to take the discomfort of it. Have you prayed a prayer like this to God in recent days? Have you ever made an invitation like this to anyone else? Here's how the psalmist can be so open to God. Because the first 22 verses of that psalm, really, actually the first 18 maybe, (laughs) The next one's after that are kind of raw. But the, the first part of the psalm, it's written in language that is unmistakably intimate and tender. He says, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born, and every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. What he's saying is he felt secure to invite God because God is safe. Because this is not a God who just got to know him, but a God who intimately knows who he is. He was there even before he himself became aware. We don't learn to disclose ourselves first to people. That's very dangerous. The place where we learn how to actually take risks and open ourselves up is in private with a God who unfailingly loves us, is tender towards us, knows us so well. If you don't spend time opening up to that God, you will never be able to open up to dangerous human beings. In order to face the prickliness of others, we need thicker skin. Do you ever wonder how porcupines reproduce? Very carefully. (laughs) And they got to have thicker than average skin, don't they? Some of you younger people, you'll you'll understand that in about five years. But porcupines have to be careful when they mate. You don't learn how to be self-disclosing by taking risks with other sinful people. That's a formula for real hurt. You learn how to trust by trusting God who alone is the most trustworthy one you'll ever know. And in that private place, God will begin examining you, but he does it in a way, if you've ever been with a good therapist or counselor, you're like, wow, you just ripped me a new one, and I'm I'm like thanking you. Because I needed to see that. How did you do that? How did you get me to see what no one else could have shown me? And God is like that all the time. Now we who are in Christ... Have an advantage over the psalmist, because Paul reminds us in Galatians three twenty seven, we don't just have a safe God, but on top of that, He has covered our nakedness with the garment of Jesus Christ Himself. In other words, God doesn't say to us, "Well, I know you're naked, but I'm a doctor." <laughs> you know, I don't, I've not, it's so weird. Like I can get naked in front of a doctor, but if I'm just over at his house for dinner, I wouldn't change in front of him. It's like wrong context. You're just another dude now. So what he says is God doesn't just tell us I'm safe you could be naked but he says I'm going to cover your shame and exposure with my own son. His righteousness, his acceptance, the way I feel about him will cover you so that in spite of the fact that you've been far from perfect when I look at you I will see him. It's like you're wearing him as a garment. And that's why, though we know the truth about ourselves, nonetheless, we stand in the acceptance and love of God because of Jesus. If we don't develop that in our walk with God, it'll never be safe to be honest with other people. Once we've attained that level of security in front of God who is safe, Once we've been clothed with Christ so that we know I'm not pretending I'm a perfect person, but in all the bad and the ugly, Jesus covers me like a garment. Then I can enter society again, enter community again, and start taking risks and show you who I am. In James 5.16, and this is Eugene Peterson's translation or paraphrase of the Bible, the message, but sometimes I like the way he says it better than any other translation. Now, he takes a lot of liberties, but I love the spirit. I think it captures well what the words intend. Make this your common practice. Confess your sin to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together, whole, And healed. This is a a command that almost no church in America practices. When's the last time you had a group confession session? Yeah, it doesn't happen. It's not safe. But when we are secure in Christ, we can begin letting other people know this is how I am. I hate it, but it is me. I don't want it to stay me, but it is really me. And you watch as the acceptance and grace and love of others reminds you in this tangible way of the grace and love and acceptance of God. Now, granted, it doesn't always work that way. Raise your hand if you've ever been burned after you took a risk like that and the community around you stabbed you hard in the back. Yeah. You haven't been that hurt if you didn't raise your hand, okay? But (laughs) if you've been hurt enough, you're going to raise your hand because it's like, ah, yes, yes. We've all been hurt that way. But in Christ and in true Christian community, the hope, the aspiration we have is we'll still get there someday. I refuse to give up on that. Maybe you already feel this way. I need to grow in self-awareness and I know I need to do it with other people. How do I start? Or maybe you're... Feeling the stirring of God, and you're like, maybe I need to do something to explore this further. I want to announce to you that in April of this year, we're gonna launch something called journey groups. And journey groups are meant to be an accompaniment to your community group. Okay? Your community group has a function. It's not a deep dive, but it is a one-to-many connection to the broader church. It don't, it, I don't know too many people who can have a meaningful relationship with 180 other people. right? And so it's overwhelming to come to church on a Sunday. It still shocks me when I talk to two people, both of whom have been at Harvest for 10 years, and I mention a name, they're like, who's that? What do you mean, who's that? You've both been going to this church for 10 years, you don't know that name? I'll probably Show me the face, I'll probably recognize the face. It, it reminds me that you can't really know a whole church. And so the the function of community groups is to at least have some meaningful, deeper relationship with a smaller subset of people. Now, relationship elitists will say, "Yeah, that's not deep enough. I know it's not deep enough, but it's better than this. It's the next step." And for some, that's the most they can manage right now, and it matters. And it's important for us to be connected at that level. So we're encouraging you, don't leave your CG, but this is something meant to be in addition to. But we all know that you can't get this deep level of self-awareness and spiritual formation easily in a group of 12 people. It's really, really hard. So even Jesus, out of his 12, took apart three, Peter, James, and John, and he consistently gave them something different and more on a regular basis. And that's the model we're following. So journey groups are designed, as you can see by the legs, to be triads of three people who will go on a very deep dive. And for 18 months, they will meet generally every couple weeks for a time of really breaking down certain things and going on a series of journeys spiritually. This is material developed by my brother over at our sister church, ICC, Pastor Stan and I just got trained in this material. It blew my socks off. I I was so moved by it. I like to say I taught my little brother everything he knows, but I I felt like a a monkey compared to him. It's just really powerful stuff, and I'm really excited about starting my own journey group. I want to go through this material, and I think that if you really want to grow in self-awareness, this is going to be one of the most effective things we've ever provided for you to do just that. If you want to learn more about journey groups, we're going to have an informational meeting on Sunday after service on February 9th. That's the week after the Super Bowl. If you cannot be there for that meeting but you really want to go, let us know that. We're going to send out an email this week inviting you to register for that meeting and to get more information from us. I really truly am convinced that if you participate in this, for some of you, This will be a life-changing breakthrough. And you will begin to see things about yourself and other people that would not have been available to you otherwise. I hope that excites you because it's scary, but some of the best things in life are scary. Having kids, getting married, roller coasters, skydiving. All scary. Horror movies. But man, Thrilling. Don't let fear paralyze you from getting some of the best things in life. In Christ and in Christian community, it's safe to pull away the fig leaves and start to take a look. If you've never really done that seriously, it's time. And it matters because a lack of self awareness is already costing you more than you can imagine. It may cost you a relationship you will never get back. Why would you pay that price? Why would you pay that price? It's not necessary. Let's bow together. I'm going to invite you to respond to God in prayer in a number of ways this morning. First, I want to ask you to spend a minute not talking, but just listening around this simple question. God, do I know myself as well as I think? There's like this public Facebook me that I rattle off, and everyone kind of knows what I'm like, what my vibe, my deal is. But do I or anybody else really know the true me? Is there me that goes beyond the self-description I tell everyone. A real me. The fragile me. That lives under all the armor I've built. So I'm going to give us a minute just to sit quietly and listen to God's voice and our own voice as we reflect. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church.